fascinating gadgets, gizmos, and gear-based technologies. Welcome to FGGBT. Now, this is the show that takes your favorite fictional science and technology, and we make it a reality. We are the Brain Trust. I am the analytical mastermind, Daniel J. Glenn. With me, physics phenom, Dr. Michael Dennett. Dan, it is so great to be here. I'm so excited to be talking about what is really close to one of my absolute favorite books. Um, read it multiple times as a child, and someday they will make a great movie out of this. Oh, wow. Shots fired already, Denon. Um, we're going to get to that in a second. But first of all, hopefully you didn't get hit by any of that shrapnel, uh, Ben Seepser, our enigmatic engineer. Uh, where are you, and are you in a safe location? Because Denon's dropping bombs. <laughs> well, thankfully I had my shields up. So today <laughs> I'm on the planet Arrakis learning all about the amazing engineering that's gone into this massive spice mining operation behind me of House Harkonnen. It's really incredible stuff here. Uh, it looks great. I can't wait to try a little spice myself. I'm not going to tell you guys that I don't love those blue eyes. Um, but we're going to talk about a few things here. We're going to talk about extreme weather. We're going to talk about a planet that's an extreme desert, what it's like to live there. And we're going to use Dune as our model, uh, this movie that just came out. Highly anticipated blockbuster. Uh, but I, I got a couple of questions here, guys. I know you guys love the movies. You love the books. Well, Denon does love the movies. <laughs> I know you like the books, like the storyline. Um, I got to tell you, as a novice, there's a steep learning curve here uh, when it comes to both the world and the people. Um, it's very strange. The thing I want to ask you guys is one: the thing that really stuck out, two things really s stuck out to me. Number one, there's a lot of old customs here. I mean, this is like medieval England, except what, 8,000 years in the future? It's 10,191 or whatever, 10,191. Uh, it's a long time in the future. Did we blow ourselves back to the Flintstone age and then have to go back out another 8,000 years? What's going on here? Then I'm going to ask you first, uh, what, what's happening here? You know, that's a really, really, really good question, Dan. And I think it's an interesting feature that most science fiction um, – really put galactic empires in place. Um, I mean, obviously, Star Wars started with a republic. It became an empire. Um, but Isaac Asimov had it as a galactic empire. I mean, Star Trek, which we did a whole bunch on, is actually probably the closest to non-empire-esque. Um, and I, I wonder if it's a statement on during that time period when these were being written. You know, people were writing in the 40s, 50s, and 60s a lot of this science fiction um, and maybe they just felt that's the only way you can control l things that big, right, as the entire mm -hmm. galaxy. Um, for a clarification, though, before we go to Ben's description of why we're in an empire, <laughs> I just want to say yeah. I really Take enjoy the movies, but I'm very aware that people like you come out of them very confused. So yeah. I love the movies because I like love me. Dune. <laughs> I think they're everywhere between good to very good. But uh -huh. to achieve great the novice must be able to understand it. That's right. all I'm saying. Just want to, Fair for enough. the record, clarify that point. Um, but Ben, why do we have dukes and, and, and emperors and not democracy? You know, I, I think it actually might be a symptom of the feudalism brought about by the separation of interstellar distances. If you think about, you know, House Atreides is from the planet Caladan, uh, House Harkonnen is from some other planet that I forget, I'm forgetting the name of. And I think what happens is once you kind of separate uh, so much through interstellar distances and you have all, the, all this time and space between you, you kind of do go back and create these unique societies. And maybe the Atreides family is kind of democratic on Caledon. I know they aren't actually, but you know maybe maybe we can hope. Uh, but you have this idea of uh, fiefdoms because of distance, just like in the Middle Ages, where you know 100, 200 miles between a castle was a long distance. You know, light years between stars in a universe is the same thing mm -hmm. in the future. That makes sense to me. I mean, when I saw this, I really thought of, you know, like a Dances with Wolves, Return of the Jedi, even with the Ewoks, uh, Avatar. I mean, this has, a, there's a lot of things that you can kind of relate to. You've got um, a, a distant remote world that's being colonized by people for whatever's on that planet. I mean, this isn't, it isn't so crazy, nor is it that original in its fundamental storyline. So I think people can follow along because the one thing that, that I really enjoyed about this was this 
this planet, this this desert planet uh, called Arrakis. Uh, Arrakis, Arrakis, uh, Arrakis. Uh, and and what I like, the real ruckus, <laughs> the <there>. real ruckus. <laughs> uh, what I'm definitely causing one. There are a couple of things I really like. We're going to talk about this the desert and uh, you know what it's like to live in a desert. But we got to hit. You know, you can see right behind me if you're watching us on YouTube. I really enjoyed the sandworms. Yeah, I'm a Beetlejuice fan. You know, we did a whole episode on tremors, and I believe then and you talked about the sandworms in this particular uh, particular story. So let's talk. How do they differ from the the tremors creatures? And I'm forgetting their names. I'm gonna remember them in a second. Uh, but how they differ and what did you like about them? Well, the sandworms really are obviously the model for the creatures in Tremors. So they are the purebred. Um, <laughs> and, and size is one difference here, right? Like they are, they are just absolutely um, enormous. But one of the things about the sandworms that is not super clear yet in the movie, but really critical, is their central role in the ecology of the planet. Hmm. Um, they pay, play a key role in the life cycle um, between spice and there being a desert, um, and all of this is interrelated. And what I love about that is the fact that we think of the desert as these barren places, but they have very, very intricate, deli- delicate ecologies, just like anywhere else on the planet. Um, and mm-hmm. to me, that was one of the cool things about um, what he did in Dune, the author, and, and, and what you see in the movie, and the way the sandworms, they're not just a monster that eats people, Dan. They're like mm-hmm. an integral part of, of the ecology, a lovable creature, if you might say, um, with some sure. very big, sharp teeth. Um, ben, <laughs> how do you feel about sandworms? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I like, well, one, I think they're awesome as a, as compared to the graboids. There you go. You were yeah. <laughs> I was waiting for it. Yeah, the, good to drop it. The yeah. tremor's name. <laughs> uh, what I like about the sandworms over the graboids is it makes a lot more sense for a, an animal that big to be moving in loose desert sand mm-hmm. as compared to hard pack, uh, you know, clay and stuff that we see in the desert in the tremors area. But what they do share in common is they can't get through rocks, right. <laughs> which I think is really interesting. Right. Yeah. So I, I really like that. And I really just, it's just it, the sense of scale with the, the sandworms and doom is just so, uh, it's so impressive. It's so awe-inspiring to see something that can eat an entire harvesting machine in in one gulp. Like how how an animal that big evolves in a in a ecosystem that dry is just fascinating. Like what was it eating before the machines showed up? Is really what I wonder. <laughs> well, the other piece about it, Dan, that's very subtle. Yeah. I don't know if you got this as a novice to the movie is they are a form of transportation too. So if you caught it right near the end, you actually see one of the Fremen riding on a sandworm. It was a brief scene. And they realize, that's where Paul realizes that's how they traveled through the desert. Um, there's an earlier scene um, where um, Kynes, or is that how you say the 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 it's exactly uh, right. scientist name? So Kynes was about to ride one. That's why he had the hooks, or she had the hooks, sorry, and the thumper. Um, but she gets killed before she can ride it. So um, oh, the fact that they are a form of transportation um, and they do you know, coexist with the Fremen in an interesting way. Um, and I do wonder, Ben, did it really eat the machine? Like, is that nutrient for it or was it just pissed at it and destroying it, right? Like not everything you take inside, you actually get value from. So I don't think that was food. <laughs> I think that was just revenge. That's almost certainly true, but it still must be able to digest it because otherwise... Uh, it would be a bad situation for the sandworms to be eating these harvesters. Well, it felt very much like Jonas and the whale. You know, I mean, it felt like like there's there, these things are gigantic. The sand feels like the ocean, and they you know they're orders of magnitude larger than anything that exists in the sand. Uh, but this felt very much like the ocean. You know, Denon, I don't know if anyone knows this. I might be. I don't know if I'm revealing anything that I shouldn't be. But you love foam. Uh, and foam, as you've taught me, the opposite of foam, like the you know the other side of the coin, is sand. Foam is a liquid that acts as a solid. Sand is a solid that acts as a liquid. And I found this fascinating because it's like they're in the middle of this sand ocean. You know, I mean, it's they, these creatures are living out there. They're, they're living their lives, and just like the great white shark, you know, my greatest fear, 
They're attracted to rhythmic moving. Actually, sharks are attracted to arrhythmic moving. Um, that would be the dist a distressed animal. These sandworms are attracted to rhythmic movements, and that's how they find what they're what they're looking for. That seems like an odd thing to be attracted to, but what I like about it is two things. Number one, they create technology that can then attract the sandworms either to or from someplace. And number two, they learn how to walk in a very specific movement so that they don't attract sandworms, so that they mimic the, the feel of of the natural order of sand. Uh, so I'm curious, how does sound transfer differ going through sand than it would in the water from a physics perspective? Well, from a physics perspective, you're just dealing with the fundamental elements are larger. It's the grains of sand, right? A any, any sound is, is a vibration of something, um, and it's a movement back and forth of things, right? So what's interesting is in, in granular materials, you're actually going to have sound traveling sort of in a traditional way through the individual gran, grain, grains of sand, but poorly coupled to the next grain of sand. So that would decay sort of quickly. Um, but you can vibrate the sand itself as, as a, you know, just as a macroscopic object, and that vibration can propagate through. And, you know, to your point, Dan, sometimes it's liquid, but sand can also solidify. Uh, and again, there was this brief scene um, where you see um, Paul and his mom panic and he shouts run because they stepped on drumming sand. And I think this actually brings it together. This is parts of the desert in Arrakis where if you step on this sand, you get a rhythmic, very loud drumming noise. And I suspect that is part of the reason why the worms evolved to detect rhythmic sound is there's these compactified areas of sand that vibrate and set up a rhythmic beat that then draws the sandworms to its prey. And it's only the creation of humans that created more options to eat. Um, so I, I think <laughs> So the sandworms would have loved disco is what you're saying. I mean, they, they would just have loved that absolutely nice loved beat. disco. Yeah. Right. So okay. I, it's, it's these two twin properties of sand, solidification and liquefaction, that play And key compactification. And compactification um, yeah. that are key in the sandworms' life cycle. Um, so that that's where I would go with that. Um, ben, you know... I know electrical engineering, you deal with sound in electrical systems. Um, you probably build thumpers because they're basically big subwoofers, right? <laughs> um, do you do this yourself and then go out into the desert? N not quite. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I, I've never been much for uh, audio, unfortunately. Ah, okay. I, I, I don't have the best of uh, tone hearing. <laughs> but what, what I found really interesting about the sand, sandworms is one there I like that they're it kind of shows them as a filter feeder you see the hooks it kind of reminds you of maybe the baleen on a whale um, so I like that you brought up the whale comparison because you know they, they maybe eat everything filter the sand out and then you know eat up whatever they found in there uh, but what's also fascinating about I, I like that you brought up this drum drumming thing Den. but what is also interesting about that is something then uh, also about the ecology of the um, sand or, or the physics of the sand must be creating those spots, whether it's the natural wind currents of Arrakis or maybe the worms themselves build them somehow as traps. Because if you, if you think about it, if something gets caught on the drumming sand and then the worm eats it, well, that drumming sand's going to be gone. So some, something's creating that drumming sound. And I'm wondering, maybe, you know, maybe the worms are really smart. Maybe they're setting up little traps everywhere to find the things to eat. Well, Ben, I think you nailed it. And Dan, for our audience, um, and they yeah. can look this up, you just take a cup of sand and, and you tap it around the sides with, say, like a paper towel tube in it, and you will solidify the sand and you can hold that cup up from the paper towel tube. So by tapping around the cup, you solidify the sand. So have that mental image and you realize the sandworms, just like I think um, many um, prey in the ocean circle their prey, right? They create little mini whirlpools yep. and they create traps. I can yep. imagine the sandworms know how to rhythmically adjust an area of sand to compactify it and make a drum beat. And, and I absolutely love the analogy to the very large whales that we know eat very small stuff in the ocean by filtering through their feet, their, their, their baleen. So we solve the, the, the sandworms problem. It is the, the sand ocean filter. So Ben just solved everything, Dan. I don't know why we would go on with the show. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, we got other. He handled the, the the worms for sure. One thing I want to mention is in our Black Panther sneaker episode, we did talk about silent walking, and there's some you know we I put up a couple of cool videos about how people can walk quietly, you know, on a terrestrial surface, not on sand. But it's the same idea, which I really love there. But let's talk about this extreme living. Not only you know the the frame, and not only are they living in a world where the, the, these gigantic worms are all around every which corner, it seems like, but also the extraordinary heat. I don't think, I don't really get the sense from from the movie, obviously the books probably tell a different story, that it's all that hot. I don't see a lot of sweat. Uh, I know moisture, you know, this is a, a culture that um, kind of reveres moisture and conserving it, storing it. Uh, it's very ritualized because it is so valuable in this hot um, environment. But we don't see, you know, we don't see a, a lot of actual sweat in the movie. Is that is that human biology or is it just, is that movie making magic? What, what do you think, Dennis? Well, I, I have to admit, Dan, I noticed this and I really was, this is one of the few things about the movie from a consistency point that concerned me. Because they made a big deal about, you know, not being out in the day, right? If you remember when the Atreides first show up, they're like, we're sealing the doors because the day is coming. Everybody get inside. Um, Yeah, it looked dangerous. It looked real dangerous. And in fact, in my head, in the books, whenever they were outside, particularly at day, they were completely covered in their still suit. It covered their whole face because you had to recover all your sweat. And I don't know about other people, but really my forehead and my armpits, you know, you want those covered if you're going to recover sweat because there's a lot there, right? <laughs> right and, sure. and the armpits were covered, but not the foreheads. Um, so I felt, I felt there was a little bit of, you know, movie error there whenever they were walking around during the day. They should have had full facial cover to capture the sweat because it is, they've said it in the movie, they say in the book, it is hot out there. Um, and, and I think they're all dead. Um, I'm, I'm really concerned about about <laughs> about their practices here. Um, ben, how are you feeling about this as a, a fellow book reader as well as movie watcher? Yeah, <laughs> this was one place where the the constraints of movie making and needing to see the faces of your actors <laughs> unfortunately trumped uh, the uh, the actual needs of what you would have to do on the planet. Uh, but one thing is, if it's so dry and so hot there, maybe the sweat just evaporates so fast that you don't even get to see it. Well, it's just that's a good point. Instantaneously, ben. they're still dead. <laughs> Absolutely, they need to be wearing their full masks. the 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 still suit should not just have been like a Bane style, uh, you know, face and nose cover. Right. It needs to be everything. You need a full goggles. The whole thing. You can't just have some loose fabric over the top of your head. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's crazy because yeah. when you think about it, the way they described it is it's an almost inhospitable desert planet. And here's a story that this is a very tragic story recently that they made a lot of headlines is in Mariposa County here in California. There was a couple and their daughter and their dog who were found dead on a hiking trail. And lots of people were brought in. The FBI was brought in. It took weeks to figure out what happened. And essentially, it was a case of dehydration and heat exhaustion that killed this entire family, not that far away from their car, here, right here in California, in civilization. And while California is, there are parts that are the Mojave Deserts here, you know, we do Los Angeles as part of a desert. You don't think of it like that, like the Sahara Desert or some kind of arid place, but it can happen right here. Um, and the second thing, this is a personal story. That's one of the craziest things that's ever happened to me. Um, you know, you guys know, and listeners of my other podcast, Fascinating Nouns, will know that uh, I have, a, the producer on that show is Sarah. She's a good friend of mine. So for one of my birthdays a while ago, we went to this place, the State Park Anzo Borrego, in the middle of the summer. Uh, I think it was probably like 110 degrees. So we went on this trail, a pretty short trail uh, to an oasis, and it was so hot that when we got there, friend Sarah was starting to get a little heat exhaustion, had to get her back. The problem was there were bighorn sheep that were in the way. So I had to basically almost carry her back to the car uh, and then get her into a bathtub and then into a swimming pool to get her body temperature down, down so she didn't have heat stroke. That's how dangerous it can be just here in the world on earth right that and that's not even the type of place where you need to have an entire society that has to basically weaponize their technology to keep moisture every last bit of it together heat is dangerous is what i'm trying to tell you here guys and these and the framen and the technology there they have to get all their moisture so from a scientific standpoint then 
What is the need to collect all the moisture? How can we really capture every bit of moisture? You mentioned, you know, the vapor in your breath. You don't think about tears, sweat. How do we capture it all? How do we recycle it um, and put it into that still suit that they carry around in? Well, that, you know, the key thing really, as we talk about so much on this show, is your power source. Um, and they allude to it um, here because, you know, obviously capturing the water is probably not a super, super problem. We have a lot of stuff that's waterproof. Um, there is a little bit of a challenge in that the reason we sweat is it is our cooling system, right? So you have to think about, you know, you're trying to capture the water um, but you also don't want to overheat, right? There's high dehydration as well as overheating. So the suit has to both still cool you, right? So you want the water to actually evaporate. That's the cooling part. You just don't want it to evaporate into the atmosphere. You want to evaporate it into a system that captures it. Um, so that, that's key. And then you, you really do have to have some source of power, I think, because the most effective pumping and filtration systems will have power. And they do have this throwaway line in the movie um, that you're moving powers it, which, right, yeah. you know, um, we have things that are sort of similar to that in some ways. We, we, I don't know how many people, you know, have played with the, the flashlights that were popular briefly where you shake the flashlight um, and it induces electricity and you can light and you become the battery. And I, I know I had watches that were supposed to keep ticking because I was moving my arms. There's a Rolex watch, I think, that was had a technology like yeah. that, or you move your wrist and it keeps it powered. Well, mine was not a Rolex, which may explain why it didn't work. Then. Oh, yeah, <laughs> but, that's probably but, but what it was. the claim was, was only the Rolex would you needed. Um, but what, what intrigues me is we talk so much on our show about how we have not had that power revolution that we need, mm -hmm. um, right. and this, this points to it. So it, it is a futuristic element of this that I find really cool is the power piece. Um, so, you know, those are the things that I find neat. I don't know, Ben, what engineering in this is, is most fascinating to you? Well, first of all, I will say I've had plenty of very inexpensive self-winding watches that did work. So <laughs> maybe you just got a, a champagne there, Dennis, taste, but. champagine taste. You got to have you got to go high end there, Dennis, is what we're trying to say. Got to get you a raise. Uh, no, not not. I've had I've had like four, thirty dollar watches that work. Oh, the swatch. Your swatch does the same thing as what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, well, not a swatch, but... Close enough, you know, right. Unnamed uh, internet brand. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. A switch. So, or no-name internet brand. A, a switch. Uh, so what, what's fascinating to me is it's because there's a lot of ways you could imagine creating power in the still suit. Like, you could imagine um, maybe at each joint there's a little inductive uh, generator that every time you move your... Um, knee joint, there's a little coil there and a magnet that, you know, charges a battery a little bit. So I, I could see actually how that would work. But what would be interesting is you kind of have to keep moving then for your still suit to keep uh, operating. So, you know, you probably also maybe want a kind of a big battery on the back that you charge so it keeps going. But what it actually reminds me a lot of is the um, suits that astronauts wear when they're in space to keep cool. You know, they have all these tubes of cooling going around that keeps them that keeps them from overheating because in space it's different instead of you being surrounded by super hot air you're surrounded by nothing and your body heat can't escape and so you have to cool yourself in a different way i could imagine that liquid is maybe circulating through the suit and that's kind of, and it's cooled through maybe a refrigeration system and that's how you actually keep the cool so you don't actually have to do to have the sweat evaporating um, and then you have like capillary action that, you know, absorbs and brings the water to a collection system that then you can then drink again, of course. <laughs> oh, I love I love the capillary action thing, Dan, by the way. I'm just going to throw that out and double down on okay. that. <laughs> well, I mean, because I think cooling is obviously part of it, but it's this recycling of water that I find really interesting. I mean, you know, when I was a kid, you'd always hear stories about if you were ever caught in the desert or alone, you can always drink your urine a couple times, but no one wants to do that. But I'm guessing if you're, if you're wearing the suit, you're going to have to do that at some point. It's going to collect the urine, filter out the urine stuff that isn't water, <laughs> the pee part, right? They got to clear, they got to filter out the pee part so you can just yeah. drink the water. But at some point you're, you're just, is that, oh, can we live in a closed system like that? Don't you need at least some water coming into the system? I mean, what, what do you think, Ben? Uh, you do need a little bit. I mean, you need as much as your, your efficiency losses. Mm -hmm, right. So it, it really depends on how good your filters are. Um, urine's pretty easy. It's kind of easy to evaporate, take the urates, the salts, all that stuff out of the urine. Um, 
your fecal waste is a little trickier. It's a lot harder <laughs> no to ultra dry that at least, <laughs> at least um, yeah. in an efficient way that doesn't require a lot of energy. But it's actually very similar to how like the space station works. You know, the space station only gets a couple like hundred gallons of water um, at each resupply. And all that water's recirculated. You know, they grab the water out of the the air. They grab the water out of the pee. Like, it's all recycled on the space station. And, you know, the, the, the still suit is just kind of a mini space station that you wear on yourself. You know, and the other thing is they do mention how much water you actually need if you're wearing one of them. I forget the number. It was very small. Yeah. And they're not living out there for years. They do go... Um, they're very judicious in how long they're out in the desert. So it's really about surviving um, for that day and not dying. And so I do think the efficiency really does work. Um, I think they, for instance, don't even attempt to recycle fecal matter. I think you just you're not out that long, um, or you've learned, or you've learned to change your digestive cycle because you're not eating really either while you're you're walking around out there. Uh, that's just you know to take us in a really bad direction. <laughs> I would, well, yeah, when you said it was difficult to take the water out of fecal matter, I mean, it's funny because you have to think about not only the, the scientific act of having to pull the water out of it, but then you have to convince someone to drink that water. I mean, that's that's tricky. I guess, you know, if you're used to it, it's fine, but uh, it'd be a hard sell is what I'm trying to say. Guys. Hey, Dan, people used to drink all sorts of water on this planet. So fair enough. Yeah, yeah uh, fair enough. And and. You know, it, it's not a common thing in our systems here in California, but that's kind of unfortunate. You know, we do actually kind of need to do toilet to tap technology to deal with the droughts in California. You, you want to actually get that sewage treated to a point where you can reuse all of the water and then inject it back down into the water table to be brought back up uh, after that fact. Uh, that is the way we can solve a lot of our water crises here on Earth that are going to be coming in the future as we deal with a more arid climate. Well, I would say if you want to, that's the definitely way to solve that problem. But if you want to solve the PR problem, the toilet to tap, it may not, maybe don't call it toilet to tap, maybe call it something else. Well, you don't want people sticking straws in your toilet is, bowls, what, you know. Unfortunately, the opponents of these systems like to call it toilet to tap. And that's, I see. Oh, that, that, old, you know, that old deal. It's a, it's a problem uh, <laughs> that the marketing uh, for it, the the good things of the environment for it uh, are somewhat unfortunately hindered by the toilet to tap tag. <laughs> yeah, that, that was brutal. Um, but so let's let's. Move no, on I do from, think Dan. I, I think oh, we oh, do now continue, have our yeah. T-shirt for the episode. With toilet to tap, it's not make the, toilet the to tap palatable. <laughs> that's not bad i like that i like that that's a good one um so i think one of the other things in this and this goes back to that that medieval kind of feel to the show is they have these really cool shields that if i'm looking at it they don't really explain this or maybe they do and i missed it but it seems like things that move very quickly cannot go through the shield and things that move very slowly can go through the shield. And this is kind of an interesting technology that in some ways I think influences and informs how all of the technology evolved, which is kind of cool. Uh, but th So this must have been a very monumental, pivotal point from a technological standpoint in this world. Denon, I know you're the expert. Is that is that kind of true, how this works? It, it really is. There's three key tech things in this universe that give you the medieval feel. Um, two, we Well, two we don't really see in the movie, and one we do is the shield. So real quickly, there was an almost robot AI apocalypse. Humans won, and then they banned all computers. Um, which is a key element in the books and and mm. shows up in a few places in the movie in subtle ways. Um, number two, they invented these shields, and it's a very cool technology, and it keeps sort of fast-moving things out. And in, in the book, you learn you can actually adjust the speed, um, the ah. lower-end speed. So shields have different lower-end speeds that you can adjust. And, and the third piece is... They do have laser weapons, which we see laser cutters and laser weapons in the movie. Um, but the, the nature of the laser weapon and the technology behind the shield is if a laser hits a shield, you get a nuclear explosion um, of oh, a wow. very dramatic sense um, that, can, that can include, because of quantum effects, both the laser device itself exploding. The, the center of the nuclear explosion can be almost anywhere. So if you know your opponent has wow. shields, you tend not to use lasers. Um, it's a safety feature. Um, it's sort of like not crossing the streams. Um, exactly like that. <laughs> right. And so it really does drive the tech, Dan. You're right. That shield determines what offensive weapons you can make, which is actually a history from lesson. 
Defense often drives offensive weapons. Plate mail drove what you, we, we did to attack knights. Developing castles drove what the siege engine was. Um, defense often leads offense. I think that's true because if you look at even if you look at like martial arts, let's say uh, a lot of martial arts, especially uh, you know when when samurais had specific types of armor. When you look at like Aikido with the sword, you were hitting the part the weak parts of that armor, and it was very specific to that type of armor. Now that's on a low tech level, but as you mentioned, if a gun and a projectile is moving quickly and can't go through the shield, well then guns become useless as the proliferation of the shields becomes cheaper and more widespread. So then you have to go back and use knives, which can be very slow, um, but they do kind of move those knives quickly, but I'm guessing uh, the speeds that, uh, you know, a, a whip can break the sound barrier, uh, but it doesn't look like that it can. So I don't, I don't think we're moving knives as quick as a bullet, obviously, but there can be tricky when you start to get to what can go in, what can't go in. You know, we see um, one very pivotal moment is where one of the guys has, he, he uses his breath as a weapon. And, you know, prior to that, the guy who's going to be affected by that breath turns on his shield as a uh, precautionary measure, but his breath gets through um, because he's blowing very slowly. Uh, It's just very interesting how you kind of have to adjust, how the world adjusts to this is what I'm saying. No, very true. And, you know, the breath is a great example, Dan. There is a difference between large-scale shields and and, uh, personal shields, right? The idea, you got to let something through your personal shield or you asphyxiate, right? Because you got to have new oxygen coming in and you don't want to build up the carbon dioxide inside. So you right. know gas is a problem here. If you have a large-scale shield, you can actually set your threshold much lower because you can make um, sort of, as we know, artificial environment and you know you can make breathing apparatuses on a large scale. The knife thing is interesting because you actually now end up with a mixed style of fighting, right? You're going to be really fast as you're trying to get your knife close and then have to slow yourself down at the last minute to go through the shield. So if you, I thought they did that really well in the movie is demonstrating that kind of mixed speed of fighting um, between the, the sort of blows where you're blocking them with a knife at a distance, but then you want to break the shield. Um, so I, I, I think there's a lot of fascinating stuff there. Ben, do you, would you want your personal shield and how would you like it designed? Yeah, I, I think, the, I think it, it's kind of nice. It, it saves you from guns. But it, what's really fascinating is, is is it clearly led to this evolution of self-propelled weaponry, which we already have, right? We have rocket weapons right now, but most of them are ballistic at the point that they attack you. You know, we, we see this dart that uh, kills uh, Duke Atreides, and it spends like half, you know, half a minute like penetrating his back because it keeps propelling itself through at a slower and slower rate. And that's the fundamental problem with this shield. If the shield can slow something down, then as long as you can keep propelling yourself, eventually you're going to get through this thing. And it's an unfortunate reality of this technology that unless you also have someone watching your back to like knock the <laughs> dart, uh, break the dart before it gets through the shield eventually. Yeah. Uh, everything can get through these shields eventually. So it's 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 kind of a flawed technology in that sense, but it's the best they can do, I suppose, especially for a personal shield where you would uh, asphyxiate if you turned it all the way down. Yeah, and, and you know, Ben, you're right. It has to be self-propelled though, right? If I just throw a knife at you, it bounces yeah. off. And so there are some things you're still protected by. Right, it would lead to this proliferation of weapons that propel themselves, which is really interesting. And we see that with... You know, the bombs they drop on the ships that as they're blowing up the ships as they're first invading. One thing I'm kind of wondering is, were those bombs even self-propelled or did they just let the gravity pull them through at Hmm. the end? Uh. Uh, You know, and they only blew up when they maybe felt the metal uh, because maybe they can feel the difference between a shield and the actual ship. Uh, once they touch the ship through the shield. Well, it's very interesting because, it, again, it goes back to this medieval idea of how do you kill someone moving slowly? And it, you, know, you bring back poisons and needles. You know, I mean, I did uh, I did a whole episode of Fascinating Nouns, my other podcast, on the history of poisons. Uh, I just did one on serial killers in antiquity who use a lot of poisons. And also, um, in a more modern sense, I did an episode on MK Ultra, and this was uh, one of the, the sub-series of this particular clandestine program was to create suicide pills 
for for um for our soldiers going into uh for the spy technology going into other lands. So when they got caught, they would just you know have that that suicide pill. And one of the things they created was the most powerful poison known to man, you know, derived from a shellfish on the end of a needle that they would scratch their hand with dead in a couple seconds. So it goes back to that it, again. You a needles can be very slow, uh, and and it's all the technology almost has this weird going back to the analog days, and it makes sense because of the advanced technology in the front end. Uh, it's very strange, uh, and I, I actually really love that that aspect of this. Uh, so one of the other things, one of the last things I want to mention are these or, they're called ornithopters, these dragonfly like. Um, these dragonfly-like vehicles that fly through the air. Uh, I love this technology. And also they fly through this really interesting sandstorm to bring it back to this desert world. There's a lot going on here. I'm curious the physics of this. Denon, obviously I know a dragonfly can fly. I see them all the time. But could you use that technology, that, that, in, that, that biological technology, and use that to influence and inform you know, a vehicle that we could fly around at a much larger scale? You know, it's interesting. I find it fascinating that this is one case where mimicking biology kind of failed us um, mm. because energy comes in again. Our, our, you know, nemesis that we talk about all the times. You might want, I mean, for most of human history, we noticed things could fly. We know exactly how they could fly in many ways, sort of. You know, you look at birds and insects, and, and people were very observant, and they could draw them and do things. And so throughout history, people trying to mimic that. Um, and we just never solved the energy problem. And basically, our solution was to make fixed wing things or things with propellers like helicopters, right? And basically, you know, generate enough thrust for airplanes that the wings got you the lift or the propeller, you know, we were able to solve the energy problem and, and make propellers work on helicopters. Um, I think people would still love to do this. But I think it is ultimately, from my, my understanding, it's ultimately an energy problem and a weight-to-lift ratio that just to get the energy to, to buzz those things fast enough is going to be problematic. So perhaps, I mean, we are 8,000 years into the future, that energy revolution we've always been talking about on the show maybe has finally happened. Now, what I also thought was cool, which I forgot, and I actually went back and looked up and is in the book as well, these are hybrid. They are both jet and flappy, um, if that's a technical term. It is, um, yeah. A you, commonly it, used technical term, as a matter of fact. If you notice, in the sandstorm, Paul turns off the flappy part and at the right moment turns on the jets. Um, and they actually are uh, capable, some of the ornithopters, of short space hops um, in the books, um, which is an interesting joint technology. We've talked about um, going between different medium, vacuum and space and vacuum no, vacuum and space are the same between the vacuum of space and air. Um, so, you know, I'm really interested, though, from Ben's perspective, um, would he want to fly in one of these and who has to build it for Ben to be confident? <laughs> yeah, it, it's tricky. I, I mean, the general thing about uh, engineering is you want as few moving parts as possible because the less things that are moving, the less likely things are to break, the less... Uh, the less lubricant you need, the less joints you need, you know, all that stuff. Uh, and that's one of the things that has basically sunk flapping devices as a method for mechanical flight uh, throughout history. It's, it's also the, the weight to lift ratios. Uh, there's a reason birds are only so big. There's a reason bugs are only so big, at least the flying ones, is because that technology doesn't really work once you scale up to something that can lift... Um, heavier things um so you have this i, I think unfortunately i think it's unlikely and i wouldn't want to be in an orthopter because i would really worry about what kinds of material can they really come up with a material that's strong enough to survive how fast you'd have to flap to get something like that in the air uh, i think that would be a huge challenge uh from a materials perspective uh, but, you know, it is the future. Maybe they found the right materials. And, you know, we also see, you know, they have anti-grav technology to some degree as well. So maybe, you know, you combine a lot of stuff and you can make it work. Well, you know, Dan, yeah. I, not to cut you off here, but we, we know where we have to go with this. And it, it comes down to the ultimate battle of foam versus sand. 
Um, it's clearly foam-designed wings um, trying to survive a sandstorm of unimaginable magnitude. And not surprisingly, the foam wins. I, I, without question, the foam wins. And I think the deflapification of these vehicles is what's going to make them a much better vehicle in general. I think we can all we can all agree on that because we see, you know, one of the things I want to talk about here is this sandstorm that they somehow survive. But that sand is moving very quickly. Uh, as we all know, you, people use sand blasters to take off paint on cars. It can it can damage metal. Uh, it's it's a very harsh uh, a very harsh material. Once you get sand moving at, at high speeds. How do they survive this sandstorm, and how fast is this sand moving? Because it looks devastating, and they talk about how it's devastating. So, Denon, what what, are we, what speeds are we looking at here, and, and what level of damage can we expect? Well, you know, this is one nice moment where they actually quote a speed in the movie of 800 kilometers per hour. Um, and when you convert that to miles per hour, it's a, you know, it's, it's a reasonable speed for a sandblaster. So my, my gut reaction to this was actually, you know, you, you told your, um, some of your personal stories about surviving or not surviving the desert. Um, as a grad student, um, you know, I had to machine a lot of my own parts for my experiments. And I just loved bringing the things I machined to the sandblaster and um, shining them up and making them look really cool, even if there was absolutely no reason to give them that sort of finish, right? Like sure, it served no right. functional purpose, but yeah. it, it certainly erased all my machining mistakes, like any tool marks and errors, <laughs> and it made yeah. it look like I was super professional. So my only concern was when that ornithopter comes out, it should either be completely broken or really shiny. Um, and I was a little disturbed that it wasn't as shiny as, as the parts I stick in a sandblaster. That was my reaction. Maybe I was distracted by my past, Dan. Um, I don't know. Ben, how did you feel about this thing surviving uh, the, the natural sandblaster? Yeah, well, so one thing I think that's interesting is it kind of seemed like there's much bigger particles flying around on Arrakis than just, you know, the media. You know, you, when you're sandblasting, you, what you call is media, which is usually very fine very, very fine sand or glass or, you know, material. And on the plant, we see like almost rocks <laughs> flying around mm -hmm. in there. And when you think about the speeds, you know, they're talking about 800 kilometers an hour, which is about 500 miles an hour. You know, that's the kind of speed that can pick up big stuff, not just sand. You know, that's faster than the, the worst tornadoes on our right. planet by almost 50%. So, or by more than 50%. So you have this it could pick up rocks. So you're really having rocks thrown at you at hundreds of miles an hour. Um, it's not just the sand. It's all sorts of horrible things. And in that case, I'm not surprised that it doesn't come out shiny because you'd have all <laughs> these cracks and dimples and wrinkles yeah. from being pelted by rocks <laughs> as you went through this. It's like storm. being like a meteor shower is what you're saying. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, or yeah, even worse. Like, <laughs> right. Worse than a meteor it's shower. Worse. I mean, it, it'd be like... It'd be like driving a car through, you know, a rock fall. Like, you know, imagine like a, you know, imagine like a landslide with all these rocks and you want to drive your car through it at 500 miles an hour. It, you're not going to look pretty uh, coming out the end no, of that. No, you will not. You might look like a smoothie uh, coming out of the other end of that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's pretty devastating, but this was, I mean, this was an interesting combination, you know, a, a nexus point of cool technology and detrimental environmental conditions uh, that I thought were really interesting. But, you know, we've arrived at our errors, additions, and omissions section. Now, this is things we wanted to talk about, but we didn't quite get to. Then, and you teased us with an early error addition early on. Uh, what do you have? You have anything left in the tank for, for the end of the episode? I, I do. I will say I really did enjoy um, this movie from a visual perspective. You know, I thought it was an impressive sort of capturing of the world. Um, I thought it gave a good feel of the technology you discussed, Dan, how it feels a little medieval while forward looking at the same time and advanced. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I am still... I, I realize, and this is just my my generic era edition admission here. What fascinates me about movie making is the challenge of taking, you know, this book, which I've read many times, and I was even rereading a little of, that so much of it takes place in people's heads, right? This book really captures the internal psychology, and it's very much about betrayal and secrets and and all of that. You know, how do you make a movie? when most of the information is in the people's heads, I think is a very interesting movie-making challenge. 
Um, and that's why I opened with I'm waiting for the great Dune movie where they sort of capture that flavor. Um, and so that that's kind of, I don't know if that's an error. It's a, definitely an addition. Um, it's certainly not an omission. Um, but that's <laughs> it's kind definitely of, a I, backpedal. I mean, this is an errors, additions, omissions, rumifications, and backpedaling. What's going on? Ruminations. That's the word I keep Well, no, like, like I said, I, I would love, I, what I realized is I would love to see someone figure out how to make a movie where most of it takes place in people's heads. Well, if ifs and buts and candy and nuts, we'd all have a Merry Christmas, Denon. I don't know how exactly. to do that. This is the I know, the, but somebody will someday, right? This is the conundrum. Yes, we'd have to directly project our thoughts onto the screen. It might be Ooh, possible. We might crack cool. it. That's a great idea, isn't it? Patent it's a great idea. Heard. Yeah, you're you're <laughs> the analytical mastermind, Dan. I, I like it. We're gonna solve that on a future episode. We're gonna solve that that technological problem. But until then. Ben, is there anything about this that you wanted to air edition correct, ruminate about, uh, or even backpedal? Uh, no, I think what I really loved about this movie is how they teach you not to assume things about other cultures. When uh, the Duke Atreides first meets the Fremen and the Fremen spits at him, mm-hmm. and you know everybody like, you know, draws their knives and is about to like kill this guy. And then, you know, uh, Duke Duncan Idaho is like, no, 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 that's a good thing. We thank you for your gift of your water, <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. gift of your right, moisture. Yeah. Like, it's this fascinating thing that, you know, you're on an alien planet. You can't assume how an, an alien culture works anything like your own culture. You know, it, it, it teaches us so much about how important it is to listen to others and learn about how others uh, work because otherwise you'll make the wrong assumptions and start a war be- over a, a kind gesture. We all have to listen to each other, Ben, is what you're saying, uh, and understand each other. And I completely agree with you. And I also love that you mentioned Duncan Idaho because that is a, a wonderful name for a character on the show. Duncan <laughs> Idaho, played by Jason Momoa, uh, who is, I think, right? Jason Momoa, right? Yeah. Duncan Idaho, yeah. okay. Um, I love that. Um, you know, I, I've got a couple, two others here. Number one, how do bagpipes still exist in 10191? I might be, I actually like the sound of bagpipes, but I know that for most people who aren't Scottish, they're they great on the nerves. Uh, so I'm surprised these still exist in 2191. And my favorite quote in this, I don't know any of the people. All I know is it was the crazy old lady who had the veil over her face, who was torturing um, the main character. Uh, and when she's done doing that and she goes to leave, she says, goodbye, young human. I hope you survive. Uh, which is the weirdest uh, salutation I think you could possibly give. What a strange thing to say to anybody. Um, but uh, anyway, if we, we got a question, is my, my, my next favorite part of the show is question from the audience. Now, this is when you guys write in questions. We like to answer them. So I have one here. It says, hello, Brain Trust. I have a pressing question that has been rattling around in my brain ever since watching your episode on What If. Here's the question. What if animals could cancel humans? Do you think that would make the world a better place? uh, Or do you think that it would disrupt the fragile balance of the ecosystem? You know, would this keep animals outside of the lab, laboratories, uh, and things like that and make the world, make the science a better world for it? Thank you and keep up the good work. I think this is a good question. We've seen a proliferation of cancel culture harming people and, and their livelihoods. But what if animals could weaponize this to make their world better? We do treat them very poorly. I like the the, the foundation of this question. Uh, Denon, what do you think about this? As being someone who lives in the academic sector, uh, this has got to be a concern to you. I imagine you've never, you've never uh, experimented your foams on any sort of living creature except maybe your own family. Uh, but what do you think about this? Well, you know, j- just to uh, clarify and quote my advisor when he was interviewed about pad information many, many years ago, and the, um, it, the reporter got confused and thought we were studying zebras in our lab. His direct quote was, um, we've never touched a zebra. Um, <laughs> we, 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 I have never experimented on animals. So it was interesting in grad school. My lab overlooked across the parking lot. Um, the vivarium and biology building, um, where I was a grad student, where animal research was. And, and you know, it's interesting because I think, um, yeah, there, we're, we're at a moment in time where people are using um, their voice to actually correct a lot of um, long-standing oppression and things that are wrong. And animals certainly could play a role in that. Um, and it would be real interesting what that would look like from the animal side 
if they were able to, for instance, use Instagram and Twitter from inside research labs. Right, I think that, right, would really, yeah. that would really change the nature of things. Though it does make me wonder um, how depressed I would be if an animal could tweet with more accuracy not having opposable <laughs> thumbs than, than I do. <laughs> Or frequency. Which is not very accurately. (laughs) Or frequency, I would have to say. Uh, More frequency, yes. (laughs) That's a good question. Um, I think think, uh, most universities would be in trouble. Uh, What about you, Ben? I know you you mostly use human subjects for your diabolical experiments. What about animals? What do you think about that? I I think animals, you know, animals have suffered heavily under the uh, iron fist of humans over the past uh, millennia. And I think the reality is if they had the power, I think animals would probably be happier without us around than with us around, with maybe a few exceptions. So, you know, if, if, if the animals did have that power, I think I would really watch out because I think they would, uh, they would use it very quickly and decisively. <laughs> I will say it is impressive in my days since grad school when people were were raising awareness, you know, that the the general treatment approach to animals has sufficiently improved. So it does show that having a voice from someone does help, right? And so there, there I, I will I will say a little bit of a nod to those that have been um, supportive of animals and and and, and you know being their um, what's the right word um, advocate their stand in. But I can't. That's not the, the word advocate is the word I would use. Advocate. Uh, Thank you, Dan. That is a good word. That is rarely do I ever come up with the right word, but I think I happen to define that one. I think that's right. You know, we mentioned in in our last episode, uh, the golden age of mammals is upon us. Uh, once we leave the the primacine, what what did you call it, Ben? What was the uh, the age of Anthropocene? The Anthropocene. <laughs> once we once we in- inevitably leave this, I think mammals are going to storm back uh, and cancel all the rest of the humans. Uh, but if we've missed anything. Uh, about this, about humans, about what Denon has to say about this movie, um, what I have to say about you know about the desert. You can get in touch with us. You can get reach out to us on the show. We're easy to find on social media. The show's on Twitter at F Triple G B T Pod or on Facebook at F Triple G B T. But you may have a question for an individual member of the Brain Trust, and I'm going to tell you how to get in touch with us. Starting with Denon, how can people get in touch with you? Well, people can reach me um, on Instagram and Twitter at Den and Michael, just flip my name, or on Facebook at Prof Den and Michael. You need the prof in there for that to work. Ben, where can people find you? You can find me on all the major social ne- media networks at B Seepser. How do you spell that? You spell that B-S-I-E-P-S-E-R. And I can be found on Twitter at Daniel J. Glenn, on Facebook at Analytical Mastermind, and on Instagram at The Daniel J. Glenn. And of course, I forgot to mention, as I always do, this is probably where it's going to go from now on, but if you want to reach out to us, if you don't want to do it on social media, we've got email. Everyone has email now. We are questions at FGGBT.com. And if you're listening to us on your favorite podcast platform or just any podcast platform, even if it's not your favorite, uh, please rate and review and make sure you subscribe. And if you're watching us on YouTube, hit that like button, subscribe and ring that bell so you never miss an episode. And finally, this show contains powerful scientific information that can be misused by those hell-bent on world domination. You don't want to be one of those people. You want to make sure that you keep being a superhero. Don't be a supervillain. So until next time... Thank you for listening. Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies is a Glencoe production and is produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and Paul Springers with music and sound design written and performed by Paul Springers. Now, of course, if you're listening to this episode and you've gotten this far, you're going to want to subscribe. Well, how do you do that? We're on all the major podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Spotify. But if you're not already subscribed to those platforms, I made it easy for you. Go to our website, fgbt.com. You'll find links to those subscribe buttons and also links to our social media, both for the show and for our individual experts, the members of the Brain Trust. That's all right there fgbt.com and before you leave don't forget to check out our other episodes you can find the link at the top of the page for everything we've got and you'll notice 
that we've got both a YouTube version and an audio-only version. Depending on what you like, we got it for you. And if you do like those videos, you can go ahead and subscribe to those as well. We're on youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. And once again, if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to danieljglenn.com to find out more. Thank you for listening.